Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring some God questions. We've looked at questions like, is God real? We've explored the differences between uh, an atheistic worldview and a theistic worldview that focuses in on uh, a belief that God is creator, is sustainer, that he um, is alive, that he is good. And today we're going to focus in uh, a little bit more on the question, is God just? And in order to really answer that question, we need to step into some, uh, an area that oftentimes for us as Christians is unfamiliar. Because God established a law and he established a mechanism to be a model to show how it is that he is just and how his justice could work on our benefit or on our behalf. Now, what do you think about when you hear the word justice? What comes to mind? For most of us, we think of punishment. We think of instances where someone has wronged us and our desire is for them to be punished because of what they did against us. Now, if we happen to be the one who did the wrong, we tend to have a different viewpoint of justice and, and what we really hope for is mercy. Um, we, we desire to find a way to get off from what we truly deserve. Now, that's important because as we've looked at the different worldviews, as we've looked at the difference between an atheistic worldview where matter is all there is, all there ever was, and all there will ever be, how, if that's true, do you come up with a sense of justice? Because in that worldview, might makes right. The place where, where Becky and I come from, the mountain area, this time of year, you will see the struggle of nature revealed all around you. In fact, about four o'clock every morning, you hear the bugling of bull elks where we live. It, it wakes us up all the time. And you'll, you'll walk out there, you'll look out the window, and sure enough, there will be um, elk engaged in battle with one another because it is might makes right. The one who comes out on top, he becomes the ruler of the herd. And in the animal world, if we are simply biochemical machines as, an, as the atheist worldview would um, propose that we are, if that's all that we are, if we're just slightly more intelligent animals, think about how different the animal world is from our sense of justice. How many, of you, how many of you like panda bears? I mean, how can you not like a panda bear, right? I mean, they're cute. They're, you know, they got the two colors. They're like, they got the nice little belly. I mean, they're just warm and fuzzy and wonderful. I mean, how adorable can a panda bear be? I mean, nothing can be better than that. Did you know that in the world of panda bears, when a mother panda bear has twin cubs, most of the time she will abandon one of them and allow it to die. Or consider the plight of the black widow spider if you happen to be the male black widow. It's named black widow for a reason because the, the female spider comes, finds its, uh, its male mate, and they have little spiders, um, little spider eggs and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, her first good meal is to eat her husband, okay? Those kind of things happen in the animal world. And if, but if that happened in the human world, what do we call that? We call it a crime, right? It's an injustice. 
So much of our sense of justice is built on the fact that there is something distinct about humanity. We are made in the image of God and we have a value that is far different than other creatures. There's a value in and of ourselves. You see, the cry of an atheistic worldview of survival of the fittest, of might makes right, is actually in direct opposition to what we see in the scripture because God aligns himself most often with the poor, with the afflicted, with the hurting, with those who are without power. He shows himself faithful because God's justice is different. Now, God is a holy God and therefore he must punish sin. But the center point The most important focus of God's justice is restorative justice. It is a justice that looks not just for punishment of wrong, but ultimately to restore relationship. And to really understand that, we need to step into the courtroom of heaven, and and, um, that is illustrated for us in the book of Hebrews, and ultimately in the practice of God's people, the Jews, on the Day of Atonement. Now, the book of Hebrews is sometimes a complicated book for us to understand, oftentimes because we have very little background of um, the Jewish law and of the Jewish festivals. But I want to propose to you that the book of Hebrews itself is a legal affidavit that points to the fact that Jesus Christ is our only Savior. And what Jim just read for us a few moments ago in chapter 9 is a passage of scripture that comments on the day of atonement as found in the Jewish calendar. The day of atonement, called Yom Kippur in Hebrew, is the most holy day of the year, and it is ultimately a legal day. Now, before that, 10 days before, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, is Rosh Hashanah, which is the day of trumpets. It is the new year. But for the Jews, the new year was not just a celebration of fireworks because, you know, things were starting over. It was a time to take serious examination of your heart and life. It began what was called 10 days of awe, 10 days to examine your life because it was understood that God was examining your life over those 10 days. 10 days from the Feast of Trumpets till the ultimate act in the day of of atonement. God's justice is restorative. Listen to what he says in Isaiah. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord God waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Now, that is incredibly good news for us. Because God's saying, the reason I have justice is because it benefits you. It's directed towards you. It's directed towards restoring a relationship with him. God's justice ultimately begins not with the world because oftentimes that's part of our struggle. God promises that he will balance the scales of justice and the evils that have been done on this earth will be judged And there will be a a restoration of all things. But his judgment begins with us, with his people. And that's what the Day of Atonement was all about. 
It was to remind us that God is holy and for us to come into his presence requires something very specific. Justice is seen in the day of atonement because that is the one day, in fact, the only day of the year that the high priest was able to go in beyond the veil into the temple, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, to the very throne room of God and be in God's presence. And it was not something to be taken lightly. In fact, if you were the high priest and you were unprepared, quite likely you might never come out again. And this is illustrated when you trace the history of Israel and you look at the lineage of the high priest beginning with Aaron and you, go, and you go back and you trace it, you discover something very interesting. In the first 400 years of, um, of Israel, of the time of the tabernacle and then later the temple, there were only 100, excuse me, excuse me, there were only 12 high priests for 400 years. Only 12, because they had a clear understanding of the holiness of God. In contrast, in the last 400 years leading up to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, there were 300 high priests because they had forgotten the holiness of God. They had taken it for granted and many of them died as a result of disobedience. See, God does take sin incredibly seriously and he pronounced that the way to deal with sin was that when we sin it required death and therefore the only payment for sin would be the giving of life as represented in the sacrificial system by blood because in the scripture blood represents life now for us that seems a little, a little bit strange and hard for us to get our mind around but we have to understand that all these things that we're going to explore are ultimately a model of what takes place in heaven. It is, a, it is a picture, an illustration of a much deeper truth. It is an earthly model of a spiritual reality in the heavens. So what happens on Yom Kippur? Well, let me try to take you into into that a little bit and, and, and hopefully this will make sense. Uh, how many of you have ever even read about the Day of Atonement? Okay, a few. And some of you, how many of you have never even, I mean, you've heard the name but you know absolutely nothing about it. It's okay if you don't. Okay. Don't, that's all right. You didn't have to raise your hand. All right. I know there's some of you out there. The Day of Atonement. God's foremost work of justice was to provide a way for the guilty to be forgiven. Now I want you to think about how important that is because everything that we see in God's word, in God's law is designed upon that type of justice. There is no human courtroom, there's no human legal system whose primary purpose is to find a way to get the guilty off. But that's exactly what God does. Isn't that good news? Well, it starts with us understanding we're guilty, that all of us are sinners, that we can't go into God's presence on our own because sin separates us from him. But God, he says in Hebrews 9.22, 
Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God established a way of restorative justice to allow us into the presence of a holy God. And the Day of Atonement is that time when the blood would be placed on what's called the mercy seat. I have here a little model of, this is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? It's something like what it would have looked like. Um, or if you ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had a model of their own, right? That it looked the same. It looks kind of like that on, this, on the screen. The Ark of the Covenant was what was in the most holy place in the, in the temple or in the tabernacle. And on the top of it where the, the angels, the cherubim are, that was called the mercy seat. It was, we sang about it in the Revelation song about the mercy seat, about the one who sits on the mercy seat. And it was right there on those wings that the presence of God would be manifest within the holy place. But this is a model here. This is literally a model, but the Ark of the Covenant itself was literally a picture of God's holy presence in heaven. And it was only once a year that the high priest could come and sprinkle blood of atonement, which means to pay the price in the place of. To um, sprinkle the blood of bulls and of goats upon the mercy seat to cover over our sin. And, and so on that day, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in there and there were three components that had to occur as part of the Day of Atonement. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 23. We're gonna look at a little bit of those scriptures, but it's, it's much more in detail in those two chapters. The first component that would happen would be that the high priest um, would have a bull offering. And the purpose of the bull offering um, was to make sacrifice for himself and for his family, to confess his own sins because it was recognized that only one who was clean could come into the presence of God. And the high priest in the offering of that bull, that sacrifice where he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat and mix it with the incense was a picture of the need for a sinless savior. See, the high priest was simply a model of, some, of a greater truth that pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ. And so before he could go in and make an offering on behalf of the people, the high priest, because he was human and sinful, had to offer the bull offering to cleanse himself. So the high priest sacrificed um, the bull as a sin offering for himself and for his household according to Leviticus chapter 16 verse 11. Next he took a censer of burning coals with his hands full of sweet incense and carried them into the most holy place and put them but also he is the offering that goes in and covers over the mercy seat as represented on the day of atonement with two goats. Now, I know this is all kind of sounds a little strange, a little crazy, but um, it was a beautiful picture of God's work that pointed to what Jesus was gonna do for us. So after purifying the holy place and offering a sin offering for himself, the high priest then went out into the courtyard in front of the temple, and there were two identical goats. They were both the same size, the same coloring, both of them without any kind of blemish, and he would have a, um, a lottery box. And inside that box, there were two lots. 
one of which said, for Yahweh, another one said, Azazel, which means, literally it means the gate, the, excuse me, the goat that goes away or the scapegoat. And each of those goats had a unique purpose. One was going to be an offering that would, that would sprinkle over the mercy seat to cover over sin. And the other would be sent away that represented taking away the record of our sin. And it was, it was incredible what would happen. And it was considered to be a good omen in those days that during the, the time of the temple, if for Yahweh came up in the right hand of the priest, that meant that God was pleased with his people. Now, it's interesting that in the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, um, Jewish uh, literature and records, including the, the Talmud, record that the name Yahweh never came up in the right hand of the high priest for 40 years in a row. Now, what happened 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple was Jesus Christ. And, and there were all kinds of things that pointed to the fact that the glory of the Lord left when the veil of the temple was torn at Jesus' crucifixion. So the sin offering would come up in one of the hands and it would say for Yahweh and he would take that goat and he would make an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord that um, would be sprinkled before the Lord. The high priest would take the goat chosen as a sin offering according to Leviticus 16.8 and sprinkle its blood as he had done before with the bull before and on the mercy seat. And this made atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness or sin of the people of Israel. By the sprinkling of blood, he also made atonement for the tabernacle and for the altar and the burnt offering. And although not all the details are, are clear, it was the process that God had chosen to cleanse everything. Life was given because that's the price of sin. Then the scapegoat would be taken and, and it was something incredibly unique because the scapegoat would be taken and when it was taken, a scarlet cord was tied around its horns. One of the reasons why I told you at the Feast of Trumpets that the appropriate trumpet for the Day of Trumpets is that made of a ram's horn because it was ultimately pointing to um, both the sin offering and towards the scapegoat that would be offered, uh, excuse me, that would, that would send away the sin of the people. Now, here's what, what would happen with the high priest. After he had, he had made the offering of the goat, he would come and he would confess all of the sin of the people on the head of the scapegoat. It wasn't just a few moments and it wasn't, you know, a, a quick and easy prayer he would have to confess all the sins of the people of Israel over the last year. It would take a great deal of time and he would confess that with his hands literally on the top of the goat. And you see as in the picture there, the scarlet cord would be tied to its horns. And it was very, very significant about that cord because it represented that this is the scapegoat that would carry away the record of the people's sin. 
You see, this points ultimately to Jesus Christ because Jesus, not only in his sacrifice, not only forgives our sin, but he eliminates the record of it. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, your sin is nailed to the cross, canceling its record. And that is portrayed in the scapegoat. Because the scapegoat would be sent, and it was a very elaborate system, after the high priest had confessed all of the sins of the people on the head of the scapegoat, the scapegoat with the scarlet cord tied around its horns would be taken 10 miles away and there would be booths along the way where there would be a record that came back to the temple. Runners would come back saying, he's at mile marker number four, mile marker number five. This is where he is because the people were waiting to see what was gonna happen when the scapegoat reached the end of his journey. Ten miles out, there was a cliff outside of Jerusalem. And the scapegoat was taken by a priest who was chosen for that specific purpose. And he was led to the edge of the cliff. And, and there, um, the cord would be tied to him. But before he left, they would have taken a portion of that cord and they would have tied it to the doors of the temple. And the reason that they did that is because they wanted to see whether or not God was going to accept the sacrifice that was given, whether God was going to forgive their sins. And so when the scapegoat reached the end of his journey, he would be pushed off a cliff, taking away the sin out of the city, out of Jerusalem, out away from the people, out into the wilderness where it would never be seen again. And what the scripture, or excuse me, what um, Jewish tradition records is that when God accepted the sacrifice, the scarlet cord that was tied to the doors of the temple would be transformed and would turn white. And so they were waiting to see whether or not God would accept the sacrifice and whether they as a people would be forgiven. And it pointed to a verse that we find in Isaiah that is so powerful where he says, <coughs> excuse me, I've skipped over a whole bunch of stuff, where he says in Isaiah, though your sins, come let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That verse was pointing to what would happen if God forgave their sins, if they, in their heart, had genuinely confessed their sins, there would be a miraculous transformation of that cord on the temple saying, you are forgiven. I told you that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, in about 30 A.D., many things changed. The cord no longer changed color because it was no longer needed to have a scapegoat because Jesus Christ himself carried away the sins of the people. The sacrifice of animals would no longer suffice because someone far greater had come in and gone not just to the holy place and the most holy place there in the temple, but into the very presence of God, into the real temple in heaven and his offering, his sacrifice, his blood covered over our sin. And his work carried away the record of our sin so that we could be completely forgiven.
You see, the symbols in the Old Testament all pointed to a greater reality, to what Hebrews chapter 9 says, says this in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the, the tabernacle that was there uh, in the wilderness or the temple, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. That's what happened on the ultimate day of atonement on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ entered into the holy place and his blood covered over your sin and my sin and carried away the record so that it would not be counted against us anymore. Now that's the part that I hope you will, you will really grab a hold of because you're not only forgiven, you're not only made clean, but God promises that he will not remember our sin. He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has separated our sins from us. And east and west never meet would you think about that just for a moment? If you start traveling north and you continue to, to go north, eventually you hit the North Pole, and once you pass the North Pole and you keep walking, what are you doing? You're walking south. But if you start walking east and you keep walking east, are you ever going west? Because they don't meet. You have to turn around in order for it to be west. He's saying it's gone. And that's what is pictured on the Day of Atonement in the scapegoat that he's pulling away the record because God in his justice wants you in his presence, wants me in his presence. And so God was willing to do this for us in order to restore us to his presence. Now, one of the things that's very significant about the Day of Atonement is God's instructions about how the people of Israel were to celebrate it were very, very clear. Leviticus chapter 23 says this, verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, means coming together, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. In other words, this was a day you had to take incredibly seriously and you could not work. The penalty for working on that day, for taking for granted God's atonement was that you would be cast out and you would no longer be part of God's people. It was the most extreme punishment short of death that could be placed upon the people of Israel. But the reason why they were not to work 
was because it would point to the fact that God himself was the one who was going to provide atonement. It was not based upon their good works, their efforts. It wasn't based upon them keeping the law. It was based upon a sacrifice of blood that was offered to cover over their sins, all of which pointed to the only way, as we heard last week with, with Ian's message, the only way to be saved was by faith. The only way to be saved was through Christ because every sacrifice ultimately pointed to Jesus and his work upon the cross. They took this day incredibly seriously because they believed that first, beginning on the day of trumpets, 10 days before, that God would open up the book of life and he would examine every person based upon where they were in relationship with him. And based upon that relationship, he would determine what was going to happen for them in the next year, whether they would live or die. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If what you did over the next 10 days determined everything else about your life from that day forward, how seriously would you take it? If you really believe God is a holy God, whose righteousness and perfection requires us to take him incredibly seriously and you realized that the books were being opened and your life was being examined, you were being put on trial, what would you do? I believe you would be like the faithful people of Israel because they spent those days repenting of their sin, looking and examining their life and asking the Lord to show them anything that was within them that was out of fellowship with him. Any area where they had chosen to, to worship an idol in his place. Any disobedience, any sin habit that had crept up into their own heart and life. It was a time to examine their life. And they took it incredibly seriously. Because they realized that the consequences could very well be judgment and could very well be death. They took the sin seriously. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus is speaking on the, on the Mount of Olives, he talks about the separation of the people in Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he talks about a day of judgment. And many scholars believe that what he is pointing to is that ultimate day of judgment, that ultimate day of atonement, when he will separate those who have faith and who've, whose sin is covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ from those who have rejected him. He says in Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes on and says, he gives a reason for it when he says, for I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. In other words, your faith was demonstrated by your actions. The works of your life pointed to the reality of your faith and how you took your relationship with me. To those who were on his right, it was not a day in any way of punishment. It was a day to enter into the presence and pleasure of God. That's the purpose ultimately of the day of atonement. 
It was to allow God's people and God's presence to be with them once again. See, God in his justice desires communion with you and with me. And he worked a way that was perfect, that was righteous, that was holy, that provided a way for you and I, though our sins are as scarlet, they could become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they could become like wool. The Talmud tells us, which is um, Jewish writings, a commentary on the scripture, tells us that during the 40 years that Simon the Just was the high priest, this was um, much prior to the days of Jesus, the thread that was tied to the temple turned white as soon as the goat was sent away because the people of Israel took seriously the Day of Atonement. It was a sign that their sins were forgiven. In later times, according to the Talmud, the change to white varied, a proof of the people's moral and spiritual deterioration that was gradually on the increase. Until 40 years before the destruction of the temple, when the change of color was no longer observed. That's in the Jewish Talmud. Something changed. What changed was Jesus. In fact, Jewish literature goes on to explain that the Shekinah glory, which is the presence of God, it left the temple 40 years prior to its destruction. Three signs occurred to show evidence of this. Number one, the western candle of the menorah refused to burn continually. For 40 years, it would go out. It was like it had a short. Secondly, the doors of the temple would open of themselves. And thirdly, the red wool no longer turned white supernaturally. What happened 40 years before then was when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, opening the way into the most holy place. Because Jesus Christ had stepped into the most holy place in heaven and made atonement for you and for I. His atonement, his blood has made us clean. That's a gift that we've been given. God's justice should change how we live. We should live in remembrance of Jesus' work and his atonement and in anticipation of his return. But also, I believe God's justice calls us to personal and corporate reformation. We've just celebrated here in, in Europe the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. A distinctive call upon the church of Jesus Christ to examine ways that the church had become corrupt. It is incredibly important that we celebrate that and that we remember that it is in human nature for us to drift away from the Lord. But I believe the best way that you and I could honor the Reformation would be a call for personal Reformation ourselves, to examine our own heart and our own life. See, Jesus, when he talked about justice, he said in Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God will provide justice. He has already worked a restorative justice act for you and for me. But he's calling us to examine our lives, to come into a season of personal reformation, to examine ourselves, to examine our faith, to see if it's real. And so what I want to encourage you to do is in your, in your bulletins, there's some questions. Because when we think about the holiness of God, we need to examine our own heart and life. And there's some questions we should explore as individuals. There are also things we should explore as a church because I believe it's good for us as we think about the Reformation to examine ways that we as a people may have drifted away from God's word and from his intent. But it begins with our own heart and life. So let me urge you to begin asking yourself some incredibly important questions because the scripture tells us that every knee will bow before Jesus Christ and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That great day of accountability, of a judgment, of atonement is one we all will face. And we will face it either as one who is covered completely by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and whose sins are completely forgotten. They're sent away just like that scapegoat. Or we will face it in our own pride and discover we are wanting. So ask yourself, have you personally trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life? Has there been a moment when you've recognized, Lord, I don't measure up. I can't come into your presence because I'm a sinner. I need you. And call upon the name of Jesus and simply say, Jesus, would you save me? I'm trusting in what you did not in who I am, not in a religion, not in my good works, nothing but you. Furthermore, as you examine your life, are there sins that you need to confess? I want you to picture that, that picture of the high priest there placing his sins, the sins of the people, on the head of the scapegoat. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He sends it away. And so he calls us to examine our heart and life. Are there areas of your life, of my life, that are in rebellion against God's lordship and his commands? Are there attitudes that need to be transformed and changed. Confess that and turn from it. Is there a sin stronghold in your life that you've not turned from and trusted in the power of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ to overcome? If so, would you do so? And, and if you have questions about these, I want to urge you to write to us. Write to myself or to Ian or to one of the elders or just talk to us. You're not alone. We can show you how the gospel speaks into your life as it is spoken into mine. Furthermore, it's a time to evaluate our life. Am I growing in love for God and for others? 
in a positive way? Is that happening? Am I learning the truth of the gospel? Am I being in God's word regularly? The way for transformation to happen is to be in his word, to discover his truth for yourself. And then as we discover it, am I living the truth that God has already revealed to me? Or am I being led astray by the lies of the enemy? Another question is, are there idols in your life, in my life, that I'm trusting in for comfort or security rather than God himself? Are there things that I turn to instead of turning to God? That's an idol. It may not be a little statue that you bow down to, but it's an idol. It's keeping you from experiencing the presence and pleasure of God. Am I trusting more in my abilities or in the work of the Holy Spirit? Have I forgiven others as God has forgiven me? Or am I holding on to unforgiveness in my heart? Is there an area where God is calling you, calling me to serve him? Let's just take a couple of moments right now and be still before the Lord. Maybe one of these or more of these questions have prompted your heart. I just ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us right where we are. Lord, do a work in us. Jesus, you've already done everything that is necessary for us to have a right relationship with you. But it's up to us to turn from ourself, to turn from our sin, and to trust completely in you. So Lord, in the stillness of these moments, I ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Draw us into your presence. Let us see with eyes that are truly open how much you love us, how far you are willing to go to rescue us. Oh God, thank you for what you have done. And thank you for the incredible promise that because of what you have done, we with boldness can come not with fear and trepidation like the high priest did into the Holy of Holies, but with boldness we can come into your very presence through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, would you let that reality sink in because your whole purpose in justice was to make a way for us to come home, for us to come right into your very heart and presence because you are our rescuer. You are our redeemer. Lord, let that reality of what you have done for us transform us and fill us with anticipation, with joy, and with faith. For Father, if you've done that through Jesus Christ for us, then the struggles, the fears, the insecurities that we have about this life are nothing compared to what you've already done. Open our hearts and our eyes to see the reality of what you've done for us and enable us to trust you and to worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name.